Raymond Fernandez was born in Hawaii of Spanish immigrant parents in 1914. When Ray was three, his family moved to Connecticut. There, his father ran into job discrimination because of his broken English and dark complexion. He worked intermittently at a series of low-paid jobs, and he saw another disappointment in his son, who is often sickly and always frail. You see, young Frey lacked the macho his father wanted in a male child. Frustrated, financially or struggling, and disappointed, the head of household drank heavily. And he was so mean. In fact, he was a mean drunk who used excessive corporal punishment on Ray. And it was these punishments that would escalate into beatings. Like many mistreated children, Ray developed a deep, a deep hatred, if you will, towards his abuser. He feared his father's wrath, yet admired the way he ruled as the undisputed king of his outwardly humble castle. If only Ray could be strong enough, masculine enough to make his father proud, but the boy was stuck in a small frame, non-muscular body. And that boy was self-conscious about many things, including his looks and his family's, well, his family's material deprivation. And as an adolescent, he tried to assuage the sense of gnawing emptiness by stealing. In fact, he would be jailed at the age of 15. The teenager decided to reverse the general movement of immigration and he would leave America for Spain, the land of his forebears, to make a fresh start there. But upon his release, he did exactly that. Relatives in the old country were willing to take Ray in and he settled down and grew to adulthood in Spain. But not many years later, the Great Depression hit the United States and Ray's father believed that he had enough of a life in the supposed land of opportunity. And so he wanted to reestablish a relationship with his son, so he wrote to Ray and told him of his desires. And it was then that his mother and father joined him in Spain. They found that their son had become well-liked as a young man. He had a calm, genial manner that easily won him friends, especially women. The thin, lanky physique that his father had often frowned upon brought a smile to many a feminine youth. But you see, when Fernandez was about 20 years old, he married Encarcinoan Robles. I hope I pronounced that correct, and fathered a child with her. And the financially troubled couple argued frequently. And Fernandez solved his marital problems as he previously had solved his legal ones by leaving the country. Almost as soon as he got back to America, his wife wrote to him that their young son was very sick. Alarmed, Fernandez took the first boat back to Spain. It was there that he found a country ripped apart by civil war, and so he enlisted in Franco's army. After Franco's victory, Fernandez drifted from job to job. He really never was a good breadwinner for his wife and son, but one could say he did the best that he could. He was a gardener and a garbage collector and did other tasks, both manual and menial. But when World War II started, Fernandez saw an opportunity. And so in 1939, he traveled to Gibraltar and he set up an ice cream vendor business, selling his this goodie to British military personnel and tourists. One day, a British man asked to speak 
privately with the ice cream seller, and perhaps he recognized that the extroverted man who easily made friends could be of special use. He explained that he was from the British intelligence and said, We can use you, provided you are capable of obeying orders and being discreet. Now, Hernandez assured the questioner that he was, and he became a law, a, a low-level spy for the Allies. Precisely what he did remains obscure. But Fernandez appears to have demonstrated intelligence and courage to his spy masters. In an article published by Killer's Couples, Bruce Sander quotes glowing testimonial that British intelligence presented to the spy. Raymond Fernandez, in quotation, was entirely loyal to the Allied cause and carried out his duties, which were sometimes difficult and dangerous, extremely well, in quotation. After the war, the ex-spy did not want to return to his life as a humdrum laborer and family man. So he signed on with a ship for a life of high-spirited adventure. Instead, he had an accident that would drastically alter his life. A hatch cover slammed across his head, cracking his skull. And it was this accident that sheared off much of the thick black hair that he had been so proud of and left a gruesome scar in its place. After this misfortune, Fernandez suffered severe headaches and a personality change. Those who knew him believed his general demeanor and conduct had worsened. Now, he had previously been calm and controlled, but now all of a sudden he became grumpy and sullen, often flying into a rage at the slightest of provocation. Perhaps the worst damage done was to his ego. Insecure as a child, he found comfort in knowing that women found him attractive and he knew that his abundant dark hair was part of the appeal. Being partially bald and scarred must have reawakened the insecurities of his troubled childhood. Hey, Deuce Conrad here. I just want to tell you about Ibotta. Ibotta is one of the greatest things I have ever laid my eyes on. It's a it's a great tool for actually earning money. And trust me, I've tried all these surveys and everything that the internet seems to say that you're going to make money, but nothing has made me money like Ibotta. In my first week of trying Ibotta, I earned approximately 40 bucks just shopping. It's like coupon savings for people that don't like to clip coupons. Anyways, there is a link in the description of this podcast uh, for you to become a partner with me in Ibotta. And when you submit your first receipt, you'll earn 10 bucks. That simple, that easy, just by going and shopping at places that you're already shopping, such as Walmart, Kroger, Publix. And it's easy to cash out as well. You can get uh, gift cards to Amazon or have a direct payment made to you. Anyways, check the link down below. Use uh, the referral code K-A-X-R-F-W-J and earn $10 on your first receipt submitted. Fernandez would board a ship bound for the United States of America. But Fernandez first revisited the nation of his childhood from a jail cell because he had stolen some items from the vessel. After a year behind bars, Fernandez went to Brooklyn to look up his sister. The kind-hearted woman gave her brother shelter, and he gave her a hard time. Unable to find employment, 
he was generally in a bad temper and often verbally lashed out at her. It was during this period that Fernandez practiced voodoo. Now, obviously his sister was disconcerted by the odor of incense that frequently wafted from his room, as well as uh, the indecipherable chantings that he uttered as he knelt before his makeshift altar. According to Sander, Fernandez told his sister a fantastic story about learning voodoo spells and rites from a prisoner in Tallahassee with whom he had become friendly. He also claimed that he learned to hypnotize folks from a distance and make women do what I want by thought concentration. Now, as one might suspect, Fernandez's sister scoffed at the bragging, but Fernandez was to show that he did have a certain baffling power over some members of the female gender. He wrote to several members of various Lonely Hearts clubs. In fact, in 1947, he began writing to Jane Thompson. Thompson's marriage had recently collapsed. Uh, Plain-faced and, and, you know, uh, perhaps one could say that she was down in a low spot of her life. She was not sure that she would be able to find another husband, and a life of solitude frightened her. The letters from Fernandez impressed her with their tone of gentle caring. She was excited by his romance approach. It was very romantic. He asked even for a lock of her hair, which she was delighted to send to him. But she didn't know that the hair was for a voodoo spell that Fernandez believed would put a woman completely under his power. Maybe it worked, because soon they arranged a meeting. Wearing a toupee of thick black hair. Fernandez was gratified to find Thompson following, following, falling under his spell. Now, while Fernandez attributed his success with women to voodoo, it is more likely his firm belief in it helped him radiate the confidence many women found appealing. You see, Fernandez had a gut feeling or maybe even a gut-level understanding of female needs and knew how to make a woman feel that he desired her. He gazed at each woman as if they were utterly enthralled by His piercing, dark eyes seemed to turn into mirrors that reflected an image of youth and beauty to women who were often insecure, aging, and homely. He knew not to give the impression he was out after sex, but appeared to care about her as a person. The couple traveled to Spain on her nickel, pretending to be married. Strangely, Fernandez took Thompson to meet his real wife after he convinced Miss Fernandez to be introduced as an old friend named Sonora Robles. Why would his real wife participate in such a bizarre deception, especially when it is so demeaning to her. Well, you see, Fernandez was a manipulator, a master manipulator. He had a knack for convincing women he was madly in love with them and appeared sincere when spouting outrageous lies. It is a common practice among con artists to play on the larcenous spirit in their victims. Perhaps he told his wife he needed to get money from Thompson so he could support her and their young son. 
if he pulled this off, he would settle down with the woman he deeply loved and had pined for. His wife. Now, the odd trio went out to theaters and restaurants and, and bullfights without Thompson ever suspecting his old friend was really his wife and the mother of his child. However, however, one day, Fernandez and Thompson had an, a loud, raucous argument in the hotel room. Thompson was found dead the next morning of digitalis poisoning. Now, police suspected her husband but could not question him because Fernandez took the first boat back to America before his lover's corpse was cold. In the United States, he scammed Jane Thompson's mother. After several hours, he's able to draw a good facsimile of Thompson's signature affixed to a document purporting to be her last will and testament, leaving every last dime to Ray Fernandez. He sought out her mother, Miss Wilson, and waved the document in her face. His appearance of sincerity and conviction gulled her into believing it to be genuine. In fact, the document scared Miss Wilson. It said that the home she shared with her daughter belonged to him. He assured her he was not going to make her leave, after all. She was the mother of a woman whom he had been so dear to. The two of them could share the home. I shall see that you're not disturbed, he said. Things for you will continue just as before. The older woman was grateful to the man who seemed so caring and considerate. Her daughter must have been lucky to have been loved by such a kind and generous person. It was while living there that Fernandez continued writing to Lonely Hearts Club members, stealing dollars, checks, jewelry, in fact, whatever of value that he could grab. His victims were not wealthy, so his takes were never high, but he was able to make a living through the sheer number of swindles. I guess you could say it was quantity over quality. The women he conned were single when unmarried women were still being called spinsters with no sense of irony. They yearned for passion which Fernandez seemed to bring and marriage that he routinely promised. Yet when they realized that they had been taken, they were too ashamed to go to the police. They would have to reveal themselves as fools and perhaps even worse to tell the police they shared physical intimacies with a man to whom they were not married. On one of these swindling sorties, he encountered a woman who was a, about to change his life. A very lovely, lonely, sensuous, dark-haired, 300-pound nurse named Martha Beck. Born Martha Seabrook in Milton, Florida on May 6, 1920, she came into the world with a glandular problem that caused her to be morbidly obese. And she was endlessly teased and jeered by her schoolmates. Her father deserted the family while she was a toddler, and to compound her problems, her brother sexually assaulted her when she was just 13 years old. Now, Martha was accepted by a school of nursing, and she graduated first in her class in 1942. Martha Seabrook was going to succeed, despite everything that had mounted up against her in her early life. However, she had difficulty getting employment despite her qualifications. In 
She often attributed this to her weight. Finally, an undertaker hired her to prepare corpses. The job was a bitter disappointment. Seabrook had honed her skills in nursing school, and she knew that she could give good care to patients. Yet she could only get a job working with those no longer able to benefit from her care. The lonely woman escaped the disappointment and failure of her life by reading true romance magazines. She also frequented theaters to watch movies like The Garden of Allah and Gaslight that starred her favorite actor, Charles Boyer. After eight months of working for the mortician, Seabrook heard there was a nurse shortage in California. And she decided to take her chances. And shortly after her arrival in the Sunshine State, she got a job at a hospital. Seabrook started to partially live out the fantasies of romance she had nurtured for so long. She had an affair with a bus driver. Soon, the 20-something nurse found herself pregnant and demanded her boyfriend marry her. And he put her off. Then attempted suicide by throwing himself into the Pacific Ocean. Rescuers pulled him out, but he made a hurried and complete exit from Seabrook's life. Now, Seabrook was unable to track him down when her mind snapped under the stress of an unwed pregnancy in an era when it was a disgrace. And soon she would be hospitalized for psychiatric reasons. Now, Martha seemed to recover after a few days, and it was then that she began to behave sensibly, moving to Pensacola, Florida, so she could put on a ring and pretend to be the wife of a soldier away in the war. Around the time of her baby's birth, she sent herself a phony telegram saying her husband had been killed in action. The new mother and now-supposed war widow found herself a genuine beau by the name of Alfred Beck. Oddly, like the father of her child, he was a bus driver, just not on the Pacific Coast. The two soon married, but Beck divorced Martha within a year when she was pregnant with her second child. Although her personal life was again bleak, Martha's career took a turn for the better. The Pensacola Crippled Children's Home hired her. She did so well that she was promoted to superintendent. She was truly making something of herself as a nurse. Perhaps her on-the-job success encouraged Beck to take another chance on love. She joined Mother Deneen's Family Club for Lonely Hearts and received a letter from none other than Ray Fernandez. And soon after, she took a liking to the man whose epistles were so courtly and charming. After corresponding regularly for a while, they agreed to meet in Florida. Now, when Beck saw the thin, black-haired gentleman who had written her such flowery letters, she fell head over heels in love. She thought he resembled her idol, Charles Boyer. Surprisingly, Fernandez, accustomed to deceiving women only to bilk them out of bucks, was smitten as well. Now, most articles about the couple say that Fernandez was attracted to Beck despite her weight. However, it seems equally possible that he was attracted to her because of it. But at any rate, 
The couple spent many steamy hours in hotel rooms gratifying their mutual sexual passion. Fernandez soon realized that Beck had no money and no property. After two days of sensual bliss, he wanted to return to women who would gratify his greed instead of his lust. He made an excuse to Beck and headed back to New York. Now, from the Big Apple, he wrote his lover a Dear Johnette letter. The epistle devastated Beck, but it was only the beginning of her troubles. Word about Beck's hotel trice got back to the board of the Pensacola Crippled Children's Home. Now, the era was one in which moral turpitude was grounds for firing, and Beck got the axe. Unemployed and bereft of her love, saddled with the care and support of two little children, the frightened and angry woman determined that little Ray Fernandez would be her salvation, whether he liked it or not. And so the unemployed single mother packed her bags, took her children, and, well, headed to Fernandez's home. Fernandez's reaction to these uninvited and unannounced visitors was to take them in. What could those reasons have been? Fernandez was used to loving and leaving women after fleecing them. But these were suckers. But not this woman. She wanted to impose on him. And that was a switch. The demanding, take-no-nonsense Beck had a will as strong as his. Her portly size may have inflamed his erotic passion, while her brashness aroused deeper emotions, perhaps even a kind of respect. Ray Fernandez soon concluded the apartment that they shared with Jane Thompson's mother was too crowded. He told her if she were going to stay with him, the kids would have to go. Beck did not want to be an out-of-work single mother. Even more, she did not want to lose Fernandez, for with him she was living the love that she had read about in romance magazines. He was her Charles Boyer, just as handsome and charming and a thousand times more precious because he could hold her in his arms. And with that, the kids were packed off to Beck's relatives in Florida. Not long after, Miss Wilson also vacated. Beck may have given her the creeps, and if so, Wilson can be credited, credited with the astute judgment. Now, to Ray's surprise, Beck was not upset when he told her he had been swindling women through Lonely Hearts Clubs. Instead, she wanted to join him in the fleecing. Sanders' analysis was probably right on target when he wrote that she had suddenly seen an opportunity for hitting back at her own sex, for squaring the long overdue account, for all the humiliation and misery she had suffered from her, her, the years of tender girlhood. You see, the pigeons represented every skinny girl who taunted her, every slender woman who had a husband while she only had true romance, and all the women hired over her who were favored because they were an acceptable weight. You see, Martha would be deceiving women into thinking that they had this wonderful and trancing man while she would know he was really hers. Beck would pose as Fernandez's sister when they met victims. The first mutual mark was a Pennsylvania school teacher named Esther Hen. 
This unclaimed blessing exchanged several letters with Fernandez and was impressed by the eloquence, interest, and concern that his epistles radiated. This woman was convinced that she had found true love and bliss would follow. The skinny suitor visited is a more with his full-figured sister in tow. Ray proposed marriage, and the teacher accepted. She found herself on a strange honeymoon, however. Each night, her groom retired to his own bedroom while the bride shared sleeping quarters with his supposed sister-in-law. When the wife objected to this bizarre arrangement, Beck became intimidating, which was not hard given that there was a considerable size difference between the two women. The trio returned to New York. The wife discovered that her fiance had been bled, or that her finances had been bled dry, but was too frightened to confront Fernandez and Beck. Instead, she just left. Sanders went on to write that for two years, these confidence tricksters worked at their cruel and unrelenting racket, duping the gullible into mock marriages with the alleged brother and then extracting their personal wealth and making life so generally intolerable that the dupes were glad to decamp. In 1948, they found a pigeon too feisty to do as she was told and then get out of the way. Middle-aged widow Myrtle Young of Green Forest, Arkansas, hoped life was not passing her by. When she started exchanging letters with the dashing romantic Ray Fernandez, she had found a new lease on life. His marriage proposal was eagerly accepted. In August, she traveled to Cook County, Illinois, where she and her thick-haired Latin Romeo wed. Young was outraged when the sister-in-law insisted on sharing her honeymoon bed. Beck forced the woman to take a heavy dosage of barbiturates. Then she and Fernandez put the semi-conscious woman on a bus headed for Little Rock, Arkansas. When the bus pulled into the depot, those around her realized Young was not in an ordinary sleep and rushed her to the hospital where she died shortly after her arrival. She was unable to share with police the story of her strange honeymoon and coerced doping. Did Beck and Fernandez intend to kill Young? Well, that can't be answered. Although they were willing to risk it when they forced barbiturates on her. They would commit quite deliberate murders soon after this crime. Although nothing was proven about the death of Jane Thompson, it is possible Fernandez murdered before he met Beck. There are no reports of Beck being violent before her association with Fernandez. By herself, she was pitiful. But with him, she was murderous. Beck falls into the pattern of a previously non-criminal woman whose sociopathic tendencies are unleashed through her relationship with a dominant homicidal man. Bonnie Parker may be the prime example of this sort of female criminality. Carol Fugate, who followed boyfriend Charlie Starkweather into spree killing, and Myra Henley, who became a child killer at her lover Ian Brady's behest, and other examples. In no case should it be assumed the women were previously normal or that going along with murder was simply a matter of submission to the man's wishes. 
Women with strong moral codes would give a firm no to a murderous partner. Rather, these women had destructive desires that might have remained untapped had they not met the men that they did. Now, why did Beck and Fernandez prey on women? Beck had a grudge against other women. Females often feel as though they're in competition for males, and, well, Beck had been unfairly passed over for slimmer women and work in love. Ray, abused as a child by a man, had feelings towards his domineering father that included admiration, envy, a desire to impress, fear, and loathing. And it is probable he was contemptuous of his weak, ineffectual mother who watched her son being bullied and beaten but did nothing to protect him. You know, his mother put up with alcoholism and child abuse rather than risk losing her husband. His victims wanted marriage so badly they believed his lies. Fools deserve whatever they get. It's a con artist's classic creed. Fernandez expanded it to cover those whose lives he took. Ray and Martha continued pulling cons. Using the alias Charles Martin, he began writing to a 66-year-old widow in Albany named Janet Fay. Faye knew that she was long past the age when women are usually regarded as being attractive, but she still hoped for someone with whom she could share her life. She lived in a rather large apartment. It was too big for one person and reinforced her sense of loneliness. A deeply religious Roman Catholic who faithfully attended Mass, Faye was pleased to find that this eloquent and refined Charles Martin shared her beliefs. Her letters were filled with references to God, Jesus Christ, and the church. She was thrilled when he asked for a lock of her hair. They arranged to meet in December of 1948, and Fernandez altered his appearance to make himself look older. He put white streaks in his hair and makeup to deepen his lines, deepen lines around his eyes. In fact, in late December, Martin and his sister traveled to Albany to meet Faye. The courtly gentleman showed up on Faye's doorstep carrying a bouquet of flowers. They spent much of their time sharing their similar religious convictions. As the new year 1949 rolled around, Faye found herself entranced by the smooth-talking and deeply Christian man. So smitten, she agreed to give all of her cash, bonds, and jewelry to the man she thought of as her husband-to-be. Martin's helpful sister packed it in the trunk and, well, same as it had been for the property of the late Myrtle Young. Faye probably anticipated a romantic elopement when she set off with her fiancé and future sister-in-law for the small town of Valley Stream. The trio rented a little apartment. Settling into their new digs, Faye spoke of writing to her stepdaughter. Beck reacted sourly to the idea, and harsh words were exchanged. Suddenly, the 300-pound nurse grabbed a hammer and slammed Faye's head with it. The elderly woman's skull cracked, but she did not die instantly. As blood flowed from her head, Fernandez strangled her. Her false teeth plopped out of her mouth as she died. Nonplussed, Beck shoved the corpse into a cupboard, and got rid of the dentures. Beck and Fernandez sat around discussing ways to get rid of the body. 
Fernandez mentioned his sister and Astoria lived in a home with a big basement. Myrtle Young's trunk was not big enough to hold Janet Faye, so they brought a new they bought a new one and headed for his sister's house. Could they leave the trunk in her cellar for a while? They asked. Certainly, his sister replied. The January weather was freezing, so begging figured that the body would keep for a few days before giving off the telltale odor. Now, Ray and Beck rented a house in Queens that had a cellar, then fetched the trunk from his sister's home. It was there that they buried Faye in a hole in the basement, which they filled over with cement. When the cement hardened after a few days, a couple went to the real estate agency to say that they did not want the house after all. Beck wanted Faye's property from American Express, but knew it might set off alarms if they did it themselves. She believed that she could persuade Janet's stepdaughter to help them. Thus, she typed the following letter and mailed it to her stepdaughter, Mary Spencer. Dear Mary, I am excited and having the time of my life. I never felt so happy before. I soon will be Miss Martin and go to Florida. Mary, I'm about to ask you a great favor. I would like you to call on the American Express Agency and have them ship my trunks and boxes that I have there to me. The address is on the various stickers I am enclosing in the letter. I would like to sort out many things before I leave for Florida. I am so happy and contented, for Charles is so good and nice to me, and also his family. They have done everything to make me feel comfortable and at home. I will close with my best wishes for you both and love and kisses for the children. I really do miss you all, but I am sure that my prayers are granted to me by sending me this wonderful man. God bless you all. Janet J. Fay. Spencer immediately spotted the letter for a phony. She knew her stepmother could not type and the formal signature jarred. She went to the police with her suspicions. In the meantime, Fernandez and Beck traveled to Grand Rapids, Michigan, so he could meet 41-year-old Delphine Dowling, a widow he was courting through a Lonely Hearts Club. Downing had lost her husband in the recent war, and she wanted to remarry, but feared that eligible men would not be interested in a ready-made family and would run once they learned of Raynell. She was pleased that Fernandez had lost had not, not lost interest when she told him that well, she was the mother of a toddler. Delphine introduced the pair to her almost two-year-old daughter, Raynell, and allowed brother and sister to stay in her home so she and Fernandez could become better acquainted. Fernandez, entranced by little Raynell, spent time playing with her. The debonair Latin who courted her in such a thoughtful, romantic manner equally entranced the child's mother. One evening at Delphine's home, Fernandez was relaxing and reading the newspaper. He had kicked off his shoes and removed his toupee, and suddenly the door opened. A stunned Delphine Downing exclaimed, You're bald! Upset by the look of disappointment on her face, Fernandez said, Look, honey, you don't have to act this way, because I, could, I cover a bald patch. Heck, it's no crime, Delphine. She had thought... He was a suave, handsome, and young. She shrank from his approach. Don't touch me, 
You imposter, she cried. Why, you're old, old. He tried to sweet-talk her, but she ordered both he and his sister to leave immediately. Ray grabbed, but she struggled out of his grasp and ran into 300-pound Martha. Attracted by the commotion, now accounts differ as to what transpired next. One of those versions holds that uh, Fernandez took out a pistol from his jacket pocket and shot Delphi Dowling in the head. She slid to the floor as Fernandez watched her last breath. Her mind was not on her death, but on the disgust she had recently hurled his way. Martha, he said plaintively, you saw me without this toupee and said I was old. She didn't want me. She said, we had to leave tonight, Martha. You don't think I'm old, not too old. She took him in her arms, held his long, lean head against her well-endowed chest and gave him the reinsurance he craved. Of course, he was still attractive, still youthful, she told him. A baby's cry disturbed this loving scene. Beck told Fernandez they should take care of the way, take care of it, of this, the way they had Janet Fay. He should dig a hole in the cellar big enough for the mother and child. The former nurse and mother of two filled a bathtub with water to drown little Raynell Dowling. After breaking through the thin layer of cement in the basement with a shovel, Ray dug out a little pit. Delphine and child were shoved inside, and it was covered over. Another version of the murders maintains they were stretched out over a couple of days. It goes on to say that Delphine ran into Beck, and the sister tried to soothe and convince her to take sleeping pills. Raynell saw her mother in an unnatural sleep and started crying. The frazzled Beck choked the girl into unconsciousness, but not death. Fernandez believed they had to kill Delphine. If she wakes up and sees Randall, he pointed out, she'll go to the police. And it was at that moment that he grabbed the gun that belonged to Delphine's late husband, put it against her head, and pulled the trigger. Randall would regain consciousness and saw her mother being slaughtered. Fernandez and Beck carried the mother's body into the basement and buried it. For two days, they took care of little Raynell. As the confused and terrified little girl cried and could not eat. Finally, Fernandez decided that their only course was to kill the baby too. He ordered Beck to murder Raynell. I can't do it, Ray, Beck said. I can't. Fernandez told her she would, and reluctantly, Martha complied, drowning the child, then helping Fernandez bury her beside her mother in the basement. And although accounts differ about the Dowling killings, there is not much much dispute about what Fernandez and Deck did after killing Raynell. The deadly duo capped the night off with a big trip to a theater to take in a movie where they enjoyed sodas and popcorn along with the show. 
They returned home tired and eager to sleep. Fernandez and Beck did not have time to settle into bed before they heard a knock on the door. Ray answered. Police officers on the porch invited themselves in. What were they there for? Fernandez wondered. They could not possibly know what had happened to Delphine and Raynell. Could they? Are you Raymond Fernandez, a policeman asked? Did you ever know a Janet Fay? Fernandez was too scared to answer. Beck saw the police and said, leave him alone. Don't you goddamn cops touch Ray or I'll... And she made threats, but was unable to act on them before being clapped into handcuffs. Police found the bodies of mother and child buried in the cellar. The story of the Lonely Hearts killers made headlines across the nation. While only these three murders would be officially established as theirs, there were persistent rumors that they had done away with other pigeons. Some estimates that they had killed as many as 12 people. Both murderers seemed less concerned with the possible death sentence than their reputations. Ray told investigators, I'm no average killer. I have a way with women, a power over them. Martha was distraught by terms like obese, ogress, with which she was tagged by the newspapers. I'm still a human being, she protested, feeling every blow inside, even though I have the ability to hide my feelings and laugh, but that doesn't say my heart isn't breaking from the insults and humiliation of being talked about as I am. While in custody, a dispute arose between Michigan and New York as to which state would try them. Michigan had no death penalty, while New York had a very busy electric chair. Roger McMahon, district attorney for Michigan's Kent County, used their fear of New York's death penalty to persuade them to bring a 73-page confession. He promised that they would not be extradited to New York if they did. But he lied. Michigan allowed them to be extradited to New York so that they would face the ultimate penalty for the murder of Janet Fay. They went on trial in the middle of 1949 simmering heat wave. The weather did not in keep intrigued spectators from crowding into the courtroom where they sat, cheek by jaw, wiping sweat off their foreheads and fanning themselves while listening to testimony about sex and deception, mayhem and murder. Judge Ferdinand Pecora heard the case and he was reputed to be a no-nonsense jurist who did not allow a case to be bogged down in irrelevant details. Nassau County District Attorney Edward Robinson, Jr. prosecuted them. He put a variety of witnesses on the stand, including the medical examiner who autopsied Janet Fay, detectives and forensic experts, relatives and friends of the victims. Herbert Rosenberg defended both Beck and Fernandez. He called Fernandez to the stand on July the 11th, 1949. He said he had nothing to do with Fay's death. He admitted confessing it to when questioned by the police of Michigan, but claimed he was only being chivalrous, taking the blame so his lady love could go free. All of my statements were made for the purpose of helping Martha, he testified. Apparently, the prospect of electrocution had led him to discard his wish 
to shield the woman he loved. Robinson tore into the defendant on cross-examination. He questioned him about Jane Thompson, Myrtle Young, Delphine Downing, and daughter Raynell. He grew louder and louder in his outrage until Ray's co-defendant shouted, Mr. Fernandez is not deaf. The witness admitted he had shot and killed Delphine, but denied murdering Janet Fay. That led to another outburst from an agitated Beck. I think at this time, she told Judge Pecora as she rose to her feet, I want to take the stand. The judge admonished her not to talk out of turn. Rosenberg called her as a witness early in the morning of July 25th. Wearing a gray and white polka dot dress and double strand pearl necklace, the obese ogress took the stand. Her lawyer took her through her background as a teased youngster and her adulthood of disappointments. He led her to her relationship with Fernandez and her agreement to become his criminal confidant. Finally, her testimony turned to the murder of Janet Fay. Beck remembered Fernandez telling her to keep the woman quiet. Then she was amnesic. The next thing she recalls, she was standing over a dead Fay and Fernandez was shaking her shoulders, asking, My God, Martha, what have you done? If Beck had killed Janet Fay, it was due to her deep love for Fernandez. When the prosecutor questioned her, he said, we loved each other and I considered it absolute sacred. Later, Martha stated a request from Mr. Fernandez to me as a command. I loved him enough to do anything he asked me to. The Lonely Hearts case went to the jury on August 18, 1949, and they began deliberating at 9.45 p.m. and had a verdict by 8.30 a.m. the next morning. Both defendants were convicted of first-degree murder. The jury did not recommend mercy. On August 22nd, Judge Pecora sentenced Raymond Fernandez and Martha Beck to death in the electric chair. It would be almost two years before the sentence would be carried out. While awaiting execution, Martha wrote poetry, including this one, a memo to Ray. Remember, sweetheart, the night that you and I, side by side, were sitting Watching o'er the moonlit sky, fleecing clouds were flitting. How close our hands were linked then, when my darling, when will they be linked again? What to me the starlight steel or the moonbeam splendor, if I do not feel the thrill of your fingers tender? The poem was shown to Ray, who was moved to tears. He took to pencil to paper and scrawled a note for her. I would like to shout my love for you to the world. The strange couple, bizarre couple, was ex executed at Sin Sing Penitentiary on March 8th of 1951. On the last day of her life, Martha Beck set a goal for herself and pitifully failed to keep it. She was tired of hearing people ridicule her as a glutton, so she would deliberately show them possessed self-control by not overdoing her last meal. Then she changed her mind and asked for a double order of everything, wolfing down heaping helpings of salads, fried potatoes, and chicken. Unlike Fernandez, she showed a certain amount of courage since she walked to the electric chair on her own. 
Fernandez collapsed on the death day. In keeping with the tradition of executing the more distraught prisoner first, guards carried him into the death chamber before Martha. Their story. Their story has inspired numerous films over the years, including The Honeymoon Killers in the 70s and Deep Crimson, which came out in 1996. And while there have been other homicidal couples, but none as unlikely as Raymond Fernandez and Martha Beck, their union was distinguished by their viciousness towards other people and their devotion to each other. It is said fiction can imitate and dramatize, but not outdo the singular passion and perversity of the Lonely Hearts killers. Thank you for listening to the Deuce Conrad Show on Spotify Podcast. In case you didn't know, you can also hear this podcast on Google Podcast and Apple Podcast and most podcast platforms across the web. For more information about tonight's show, you can also visit www.deuceconradshow.com. Visit show notes for more details.